Hello and welcome to a very special episode 36 of the Sheffield Digital Podcast. I say special because you're about to hear all of the talks from the third Sheffield Digital Showcase, which took place in June 2019. Our very own Chris Diamond was host for the evening and he spoke to a number of tech luminaries from the city um, about some of their recent projects, uh, including Keisha Bradley from Brightbox Makerspace, Jamie Hinton and Andy Gunn from Razor, Gemma Barnes and Nigel Jones from the HM Prison and Probation Service Digital Studio, Ed Hardy and Richard Groves from Impelling Solutions, and David Forrester and Jamie Tyler from Lightwork Design. We start with the interview with Keisha Bradley, and Chris very handily explains how it all works. All right, welcome, Keisha. Thank um, you. So the format of this is that you've uh, provided five slides yes. with media on um, yes. that are going to help you explain your story about Brightbox Makerspace, yeah. how it came about, what it is, and what you're yeah. doing. Yeah. So shall I move straight to the first slide so we can see? So the slides are just that random. They're just fun for you to look at. So Brightbox Makerspace is, well, we create sneaky learning opportunities for everyone really, young and old. I mean, those with lots of wisdom and the young ones um, <laughs> to explore and learn creative problem solving. We do that through um, creating playful activities for people to, yeah, thank you, for um, people to explore tech, engineering, and arts, which makes a really nice acronym of T. So to explore tech, engineering, and arts, um, yeah, make okay. things, have fun, learn a bit, but they don't know they're learning. So um, could you maybe explain what a makerspace is? Because yeah. grown-up makerspaces have been around for quite a while. Yeah, so I think makerspaces, it's, it's a lot more open and broad. So some people think it's a laser cutter, and some people think it's a 3D printer. And then in a school, you might think, oh, it's just a cart with some crowns and scissors and paper and cardboard. Um, and I've really, really explored what makerspace means. And there are lots of frameworks out there we can look into and decide what types of tools and materials and resources are right for you. Um, my favorite one is by the, I think it's University of Michigan in the United States, mm -hmm. I believe. Don't quote me on that. Um, and it just takes you through the type of the atmosphere that you want to create. And so for us, that's really playful and that's for adults and children. So going into a community, we really think about what is relevant to, to that audience at that time. And we bring the appropriate materials based on that. So sorry that it's really vague, but we have everything from laptops, cardboard, cardboard cutters, um, raspberry pies. Okay. So, so it's this combination of like tech creativity, yeah. um, which presumably includes coding and yes. maybe robots yeah. and, um, but also paper, cardboard, yeah physical objects. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. What kind of, so what, what kind of, what, well, I, what do, do we you have do? photos of, of people? Yeah. Doing so it? you can just, you can flick through every two minutes right, and there's it. different stuff. So um, once a month we create an activity for kids invent stuff. It's a YouTube channel, which just encourages um, kids to have a go at inventing something. Cause who's to say a child couldn't be an inventor and we create the activity for them to uh, make something at home. And the challenge with this is we have to use materials that anyone, no matter what their income is, could access. And so we usually try to keep it under five pounds. Um, and this one is just robot masks. So they take the cardboard, they can literally make any shape they want. Um, we use tin foil and battery packs and a simple LED. And the kids can learn how to make a simple circuit, be a bit creative, add their personality to it. And so it's relevant to them. It's really exciting. So those are the types of activities we do from like a really simple start so that's before coding mm -hmm. but then you could see how you could really easily add coding into this and make a simple switch um and and that's the that's how we start it's just a really quick win introduction right you mentioned circuit so yeah what what circuitry do these masks have can you see us who can see a circuit can anyone see a circuit i want raise There's a hand <laughs> Yay! So the circuit is just a simple one. It's a red wire and a black wire on the battery pack. So battery is your power source. And then you have an LED, which is just a little tiny light. Um, and then it has a long leg and it has a short leg and the kids have to try to figure out how to make it work. So which way does the, the light go? And does it matter? Maybe you can do it both ways. It's up for you to decide. Um, so the kids can add 
at that circuit and I don't tell them the answers. Right. I don't. I just let them figure it out. Right. Yeah. So that, that's one of the things that um, I've heard from people that have been is that it's very, well, the word is non-directive in yeah. child development, that you're not telling kids what to do. No. That you're giving them materials in an environment that's welcoming and allowing yeah. them to experiment with stuff and make their own mistakes. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah, and I do the same with adults. So if you've ever been to one of my workshops, I often have a broom in my hand. And sorry, guys, but I always say it's to keep me from mansplaining. So if I have this broom in my hand, then instead of telling you what to do or looking over your shoulder or getting antsy and giving you all of my great ideas, I sweep the floor because it just keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Simply it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a prop to distract yourself. Yes. Yeah, it really is. As an yeah. engineer. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I get loads of ideas. I see people doing these things yeah. all the time. It's quite exciting. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm wrong way. Yeah. Uh, so here's an example of something that's maybe a little bit... Yeah, oh, I love this girl. She, she comes in and all she wants to do is make slime because that's really relevant. <laughs> and I asked her, do you know Dance Dance Revolution? And she said, what's that? Which really upset me because I'm not that old. <laughs> like... <the> <laughs> Everything, we <laughs> everything I know, you should know because I am not that old. So we showed her some videos of Dance Dance Revolution and that's what she's doing. She's creating her own Dance Dance Revolution using cardboard. Um, I think it was the Makey Makey she used and um, a tin foil. So that's what she's doing. Uh -huh. How awesome. Does everyone else know what Dance Dance Revolution is? No, yes. Yeah, so should I explain yeah, this? So it's like an art, you'd mostly see it in an arcade and it has some mats on the ground and then the video shows you which move to do next and you have to tap your foot in the direction of the arrow that tells you. So it's telling you how to dance. And so that's what she's creating, Dance Dance Revolution. Cool. Um, so, so talk to me about how this came about then. Is this, how long have you been working to, to finally have oh. a space to, yeah. to make this real, this idea. I really wish that I just had an aha moment and it all came to me at once. That'd be brilliant, wouldn't it? Um, so I moved to Sheffield four years ago, but before that I was an engineer and I grew up in working class community, a white working class community, which is quite different um, in America. And when I went to university, I realized that there was there's some, like, everyone else just got it. There's, they just understood what the teacher was talking about. So this thing of problem solving, I didn't learn problem solving. I learned to memorize facts and write those down during a test. Um, so I knew that there was this gap missing. And that's when I actually discovered that I grew up in a working class community. It was when I was looking at the difference in education between myself and some of my peers. Um, and that's what drove me to kind of solve this problem of, how we're educating children and th those gaps in education. Right. Um, and so at first I thought, I'm an engineer, I should create a product. So I tried to create a toy. I sucked at it. I had no idea what kids were going through. What I was doing wasn't relevant at all. Um, you can find it online. It's really embarrassing. Um, <laughs> What's it called? Uh, oh. <laughs> it was a solar powered car and it was like in a box that was all glittery and bright purple. And it was, we were bright toys at that time. <laughs> So now we're bright box. Um, but it was through that interaction with kids and learning more about what they like and what they're interested in, what they want to do, that I decided actually let's go down the workshop route and I'll just create really bad products all the time. No, I'll create workshops and spaces where kids can explore and create and we can kind of learn about each other really. Um, that's, okay. and that's, yeah, that's how I got started. Uh -huh. so, so you have, but that... That was before you came to Sheffield, was it? No, that's when I... So I got my master's at the uh, University of Sheffield. Okay. Because there's a whole thing called the, a visa. Yeah. And it's, immigration is quite tricky. Mm. So I had to... I was a student for a year. Um, and then I met the wonderful Sam Deacon and Laura Bennett. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, you, you know, entrepreneurship, great thing. You could do it. And they had a bit of faith in me that I didn't have in myself at the time. And so that's when I started the toy business mm -hmm. under the entrepreneurship Okay. Steam. All right. So at UCE, Sheffield yeah, University. Yeah, University of Sheffield. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it was Evolve. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. I don't think it's, I don't know if that's there anymore. No, I think the I co working think they closed space. It down and yeah. Shifted it, yeah. Yeah. So that's where Something I started. Else. Okay. But I started the thought process yeah. before I moved here. Yeah. Because you've been doing workshops and stuff with kids and you've been doing Girls with Drills. Yes. Um, for quite a while. Yeah. So, well, Girls with Drills <laughs> has been going for a little over a year. So, right. November 
2017, okay. we started right. um, selling tops. And then women told us, actually, it's all good and fun to raise funding for disadvantaged people, but we don't actually know how to use drills. Can you show us? So, and then the <laughs> boyfriends were also like, can we come along? And I was like, well, there's obviously a gap here. So yeah. I went Kids and I- don't learn to use drills anymore. I mean- No one know. knows how to use no, a drill. Right. <laughs> I didn't know how to use a drill. Um, so, 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 so that was a basically a hashtag and a t-shirt slogan that turned yeah. into doing actual events to show yeah, people yeah. how to use drills. Yeah, we're going to Liverpool this weekend to show more people how to use drills. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So who are these people? So CMS Tax and Law. Yeah. Do you know them? So this is a team. Yeah. yeah. So this is a team building workshop with them. Um, they brought six of their clients in and their, their teams and they had an open, this is my, I'm so proud of this. One minute. Um, I'm so proud of this because they had an open bar and the museum told me that it was the quietest the bar has ever been because they were so engaged in building this Rube Goldberg machine. Yeah, we gave them, they had a break for food and they were like, no, actually, can we just keep building? We had to like tell them, no, toys down, no more playing, you have to go eat. <laughs> um, so this was 36 people that had never met each other before playing with toys. Right. And so, yeah. so do you see that being kind of a major part of the service that you offer in as yeah, well as definitely. Kids, for corporate away days and yeah so i started like in kind of disadvantaged communities but what i've learned is we're all a bit lame and boring and we just need to play a bit more yeah. um have fun and try new things so you could definitely see who in the room has kind of been stifled by that the the office life and then the architects were the ones who were more willing to just give it a go and try new things and they ended up with the best product just because they were so willing to try new things i need to turn the dinger off to <laughs> just ignore it yeah um okay last slide then yeah so that's yeah. this is just a plea to come to all of our events um this is a young girl. This is what our Girls with Drills workshop usually looks like if it's a drop-in session. But if you want to come to our events, yes. we've got quite a few this summer, my cheat sheet. Um, we're working with uh, Sero and the Developer Academy to offer women. So if you are a woman who is interested in dabbling more in digital, there's going to be a course for you that you can come to free of charge. Um, or if you have a family, if you're part of a family, and you want to bribe someone into going into tech, this is a great way to sneak them in. Um, and we're, those dates aren't confirmed, but coming soon. And then we're in libraries all throughout the summer. If you look at the Sheffield City Council Libraries website, you'll find us doing light up alien maps and roving spacecraft in the libraries. And then we'll be at the light on the 24th of August doing Lego robots. Bull Hills Festival on the 3rd of August with drill art, which is this. And then on the 8th of August, for seven, I saw a little girl earlier, from, um, for seven to 11 year olds, you can build a planter over the day. All right, cool. Um, and just, just briefly, where, where are you? You're in Castlegate. Yeah, so we're based at 18 Exchange Street in Castlegate, yeah. just around the corner from Commune. And it's Bright Box Makerspace? Bright Box Makerspace, bright purple, you can't miss us, that color. Big round of applause for Kishi Paul. Okay, who's up next? Okay, uh, so this is uh, Andy Gunn and uh, Jamie Hinton from Razor, um, who are here to talk about Market of Mums. Yeah. Um, so, should we look at the first of your slides yeah. that you brought with you? Let's have a look. So. Talk, talk about this. So you, you can look down yeah, here rather yeah. than at the big I was going to say, what, what actually is this market of mums? Um, it's a peer-to-peer -peer shopping um, product. So if, when I say to people, what is, they ask me what this is, I say, have you ever heard of Depop? And most people go, nah, I never heard of Depop. And then I, I broaden it and I go, have you ever heard of uh, eBay? And they go, oh yeah, I've heard of eBay. Well, it's like eBay, but very, very niche products. It's aimed at mums to sell to mums or dads, if, however you know you want to do it, because we're very socially aware of, of everything. We're very broad. Um, and it's, to, it's, it's a, a product that enables mums to uh, have a safe environment to actually sell uh, products to other mums and actually start fostering relationships. So it's more than just a, um, a transactional thing, that you actually build a community. Okay. So it's like a, a social network that provide support and yeah. you know friendship 
All, all of that, all of that. But also, of. you can flog your old baby stuff to new mums. Yeah, and it does some time. really cool. <laughs> and, it and does some really cool things because it's a big problem, isn't it? Yeah. We, you know, if you have kids, you know that you usually have lots and lots of stuff, and it's like how how do you do it? When do you do it? Um, and there's also that problem of when people buy you things, they buy you a jumper for a certain age, and then you realise that oh, bugger, it won't fit them. That jumper won't be the right size oh. in the in yeah. the winter. <laughs> so we're solving those yeah, problems yeah. as well okay. for people. Okay. All right. Uh, so how did this come about? Yeah. Amazing. How did it come yeah. about? <laughs> so um, this product was actually spawned uh, from two guys called Ben and Tom Richardson, and they uh, had a sister who had a baby, and they spotted that actually there's all this stuff, and what, what do you do with it after you've done it? And what, what do you buy? When do you buy it? Uh, and they saw a gap in the market. And obviously there's like Facebook Marketplace, and a lot of mums do that, but it can be quite... Um, intimidating, you know, it's, it's, it's a safe environment. So what they did was they, they had a product built um, offshore. Okay. Uh, they then marketed this product uh, and it was really, 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 really successful. The technology didn't keep up. It actually right. fell over. Okay, so, so they, they had an idea and they, they got it, they got Made, it built yeah. by Badly. an offshore development company. Yeah badly and it wasn't scalable, it yeah. didn't have a decent architecture. How many users did and it so have? <laughs> well, how many transactions did it, did it have? Not, not, not a lot. Really. No, it couldn't even handle the traffic. Right. So it's, it's yeah. the usual case of most people can see a bad drawing. They can, you go, that's a, here Chris, do you like this drawing? No, it's a stick man, that's rubbish. Yeah. But if you show someone, do you like this code? You'll go, I don't know, is it any good? Yeah. How many people can actually spot good and bad code? Not very many. Uh, and that's what they were basically sold. But presumably, when, when you looked at it, you thought, here's an opportunity for us. It wasn't like, this is terrible code, what are you doing? Oh, no, was, no, we threw it in the bin. This is a great idea. No, we we, we could it, rebuild this. Yeah, so what happened was it, it actually came through um, our non-exec director, a guy called Julian Kinniston, who runs an agency in Leeds called Propaganda. And he was working with a customer called uh, Jim King, who's run by a guy called Jay Parker. Now, that's yeah. where the connection came. It's like, well, we're great at all this marketing stuff, and we've got an amazing channel to this. Yeah. How do we, we, we need some technical people who can build this. Do we know any technical people? Oh, Razor. So we were then employed to, to build this product. Okay, and th these, these, these guys are in Leeds, is that right? That's right, they're in Leeds, okay. New York. Okay, so, uh, so, so, they, so, they, so they just hired you, did they? No, um, so we actually, we are vested in this product. Okay. So we have a share in this product. It's something that we own too which we're, we're pretty yeah. proud of. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's ours too. Right, okay. So you're now co-owners of the product yep. and you, you provide the technical know-how yeah. to make sure that it doesn't fall over when a hundred mums at once, once all once Yeah, yeah. a hundred, a hundred thousand. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so you, these are the people that you've just mentioned. Yeah, the, the one, the, someone that I didn't really mention is, is the celebrities that are involved in this and this is how the we got huge amounts of traction. So I mentioned Jay Parker, who is uh, that guy there, if I can point him out. Um, he, he owns a, a, a clothing brand called Jim King, and he's, he, he's built a very big business very quickly using uh, the social uh, influencers and that social market. Um, and he was able to engage with the celebrities. Andy, you can tell me who the celebrities are. Um, yeah, share, share the microphone. Yeah, go on. Yeah, so we've got um, celebrities from Towie, uh, Fermacan, uh, Chloe Sims, if anyone has heard of those. Sort of gauging the audience. Uh, <laughs> Love Island, that's back on at the minute, if anyone watches Love Island. Um, teen Mom. Uh, a few bloggers. Um, Sophie from Coronation Street, she was actually at the, the launch event. This was, was this last month? Or? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So you have, it's like a supply chain for you guys. You know, oh, they, yeah. You have Love Island and then... Yeah, and then they, they all have moms. babies. They all have babies. And, and then they, they use then, this app. Yeah. So they're all, and obviously we've got uh, Jay Parker, um, we've got Julian Kinniston involved, and we've got Mark and Julie Hardenberg from Angel Care. So lots yeah, of specialists okay. from different perspectives. Yeah. So we bring the tech, obviously, and we make that work. And then we've got all the specialists in different areas from the marketing, marketing the PR, and, and the brand building. And presumably that's, that's all, that's through Instagram as well. And Instagram, yeah. Twitter, yeah. mainly Instagram, Instagram, I think, is, yeah, the, is yeah. the big thing. Just... Just one more thing on the on the celeb. So uh, the lady in the middle, that's Callie Jane. Um, if if any of you watch Love Island, um, a few years ago, I think she was the first, well, the first one to have the first Love Island baby. Um, so she's the brand ambassador um, for for Market Mums. So she's like top dog celeb. Um, yeah, we've got other celebs, but she's the best. <laughs> yeah.
Cool, yeah, so it's a really good mix of, of different people. Yeah, Not everyone's yeah, on that photograph, but uh, yeah. you know, it's, it, I think that's what's really key, the, the mixture of um, really expert and experienced people in this project. Okay, so we'll, we'll come on to how big the platform is in a sec, but um, I think you've got a slide on how it was made. So I'll hand over to Andy. Yeah, so... Andy, you're, you're head of build, aren't you? At yeah, so this, this product is my baby. Um, okay. It's probably the best thing that I've made in my career, the most interesting um, one as well. Um, and the fact that it's reached out to so many people um, is, is really good. You yeah. know, sometimes you work on products and... They're, they're internal products, so they're, they're just not known by your friends. Yeah, um, this is a big mass market. Yeah. So when we launched this, you know, a lot of my friends um, were downloading it. I've recently started a family, so it was relevant for me. Um, mm. I think it was basically a week after launch, um, you know, we, we um, had a son. So we were, we were buying and selling stuff on there. Right, so you've actually used it yeah, um, yeah, as yeah. a customer. Yeah, my partner was one of the first ones to use it. Um, she actually bought one of the angel care products. Um, so, you know, we got testers for free. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it got shared by, by all of my friends and family because it was relevant. Uh -huh. so, so, so talk a little bit about the infrastructure. Like, what did you... You know, how did you gauge what kind of scale it needed to be and, and what the architecture needed to be? So, I mean, we, we, we guessed that the numbers would be high. Um, going off Jim King's reputation yeah. uh, with social media, we knew that their influencers would bring the users in. Um, so we knew that we needed a platform that was scalable, resilient, reliable. And we knew that the, the previous platform just didn't provide that. Yeah. Um, so we're all about Microsoft, Microsoft first. So we looked at Azure. Um, and we use the platform as a service. Uh, so that gave us a way to, to make things scalable, um, potentially infinitely. <laughs> so when we get uh, you know, a celeb posting around eight o'clock in the evening, yeah. um, we might get a few thousand uh, users sign up, um, extra products sold, et cetera, et cetera. So we can just turn on auto scaling, um, extra servers are brought in, we don't need to worry about it. You know, we're at home having tea or whatever. Yeah. You don't um, need to... No. pay particular attention so we're not or schedule things in advance or no. have a, a well, complex we, rotor set up for we, we, we might monitoring. put a, a schedule in place just in case but yeah. we've we've got like the the capability to turn things up automatically you know we're constantly monitoring memory cpu that sort of stuff uh -huh. um so we, we don't have to be there you know it's not like we've got dedicated servers um that mm -hmm. are costing you know, hundreds of pounds to have them, them on and, and paying for someone to maintain them. Um, we're just utilizing Azure um, mm -hmm. and everything that's in there, um, letting that do, do the hard work for us. And just, just on Azure, we're using some of the really advanced features such as the cognitive services. Okay. Um, so if anyone uploads a, a product image or a, a profile picture, we, we check that they've not uploaded any nudity, right. um, you know, because we want to create a, a safe and secure yeah. network for the parents. That's, that's one of the core... Uh, mantras that we've got. Our testers enjoyed that one. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I've still got. Uh, yeah. Do you, I mean, do you get stuff being flagged through the through those processes? Yeah. So ba basically, every time an image is uploaded, yeah. it automatically goes into the Azure Cognitive Services, uh -huh. um, and that that product or that that user profile will get flagged. Someone will have the uh, the nice job of going reviewing that. Yeah. Um, some of them some of them better than others. You know. We. You know. So sometimes we get false positives. It's like, oh, sure. that, that's not, not, not racy, but you know, sometimes there is actual uh, racy content. Yeah, yeah. We can then take that down immediately. Cool. So, so how, long did it, how long did the project take from when you first looked at the terrible code that you uh, deleted it? Yeah. Um, I think, Just spinning up, you know, relaunching. I think it was probably about three, three four months, maybe. Um, it was quite a big project. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's quite a lot of moving parts in there. So we've got a mobile app that's written in Xamarin Forms. Um, so we can write the code once and we can target both platforms. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got a front-end site, so you can go to marketmums.com. You can see some of the products. Uh, we've got a back-end site where you can moderate all your images, um, You know, look at a user, see what they've been doing. Um, right. Because, again, we want to create the safe and secure network. You can uh, report a user if they're being abusive, um, you know, that we've got a messaging platform, so we've, we've got all bases covered. Um, so yeah, there's quite a move, few moving parts there. Yeah, cool. And so what, the, I think the last slide is about scale, so yes. where, where are you now? So at the minute, I, I mean, that says 50,000 users. Um, we had a check today and that's more like 60,000. Um, so, and these were generated last week? Yeah. Because so. I was so on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's, he was organised. Um, so, you know... It, it, I took the mick out of him for delivering the slides a week early. 
that was impressive. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens. You get your numbers wrong. They're not up to date. So, so yeah, um, more like 60,000 users, um, around 25,000 products on there. Okay. Um, Is that active users or just registrations? Or So in terms of active users, we're about 1,000 a day, okay. um, which looks at about 14 to 15,000 a month. So it's, you know, it's pretty decent active users. Yeah. Um, Total products sold two and a half thousand um, since around February time. And w was it launched in the new year or? Yes, it was launched. It was sort of soft launch January February, yeah. um, and then you know we had the the launch party last month, so that's right, okay. that's like official launch. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. a lot of these numbers came came pre official launch, um, mainly due to the the social activity. Yeah. So all of the celebs doing their job, yeah. um, which has worked really well. Um, so mm. they're they're bringing bringing these new users in and, and the attraction is that you can buy a product from Callie Jane um, or Firma Can. Mm -hmm. So they might post five products and, and they're gone instantly. Right, so and presumably then, for the celebrities it's a way of extending their careers as well post exactly. major uh, reality show. Yeah, of course. Yeah, everyone wins basically. Right. Um, and, and then whilst we've got you whilst, you, whilst you're in the platform, have you got any products to sell? Mm -hmm. You know, that's how we can keep the wheel keep the world rolling uh, so to speak um but in terms of other stats uh we've got about 35 million social reach and that's that's not just through market mums instagram that's through the network of celebs that we've got so they've obviously got a vast following you know right. some of them might have uh, a million a couple of million yeah, yeah, each each celeb um we're looking to be on target for about 250 downloads by end of the year -ish. 250 you mean 250 obviously 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 had a k on there uh, <laughs> Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, congratulations. I mean, it seems like a really interesting product and a, a really steep growth curve. So congratulations and big round of applause for Razor. Right. Uh, so next up, we've got uh, Gemma Barnes and Nigel Jones from HMPPS Digital Studio, which is Her Majesty's Prison and Probation Service Digital Studio, uh, which are down, which are down. At, you guys are at um, West Bar, Street. aren't you? Scotland Street yeah. um, to talk about the hub. Yeah. So, Gemma, tell tell us about what the hub is and what you guys do. So it's a great name, very descriptive. We inherited the name. Um, essentially, the hub. In fact, if you put the slide on it, yeah, okay. we can show. The Hub is quite an innovative product in terms of prisons. It's a digital platform for prisoners to use in cell, uh, which provides content that aids their progression and supports them, supports them with information around um, their life in prison uh, with a focus on uh, rehabilitation, education, support, guidance, information. Um, and it's in two prisons currently. Okay. Um, it was in, installed about two years ago. Um, through a, a program called the Digital Prisons Program, which installed infrastructure, cabling, and and internet connectivity in two prisons. The plan was to install it into more. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, but um, it went live in a former state, and Nigel and I were put on the team approximately 18 months ago to reinvigorate it, explore further how we can maximize the potential of this project. Okay, so there's, there's only two prisons in the country that have proper connectivity and Wi-Fi? Two public prisons, so okay. there are private prisons that have certain provision, but we're two public prisons, HMP right. Berwyn, which is near uh, Wrexham, yeah. HMP Wayland, which is near Norwich. Okay. Why they picked those two, I had no idea. Um, I do know why they picked Berwyn, actually. It's, uh, it's a brand new prison, so it's one of the first ones. So it was built with a digital infrastructure. Okay. Um, Wayland is more um, indicative of the rest of the estate. Right. It's, so that's a conversion. Yeah. So it's it it's if we can make it work there, we can make it work anywhere okay. type of thing. But Berwyn was is sort of the exemplar because um, it's a digital prison by default. Okay. So so this is an uh, an uh, attempt to create a content platform yeah. to go into such so, a prison. Uh, so, so some of the founding principles of it are like um, prison officers spend a lot of time dealing with prisoner admin and they spend a lot of time dealing with prisoner admin because prisoners can't do anything for themselves so it's this this sense of like um helplessness that they've got that means there's a there's a strange concierge relationship between prisoners and prison officers so they have to ask for everything because they can't do anything for themselves right. and so this is an attempt to redress that balance and looking at 
um, well, what are the things that are frequently asked of prison officers and can we start to give time back to them so they can do the job that they're okay. supposed to do? So this is, is like, a, like, like an intranet for a prison it's an intranet. where it's, prisoners it's, can clue themselves up on yeah. how things... Yeah. Um, is that we, don't, we don't tend to use the word intranet. Um, <laughs> but technically, it is. Though. But yeah. technically, it's a, it's yeah. a good analogy. As a way of understanding. Um, but it's kind of one step on from that as well. So yeah. um, there's a number of prisons that have self-service facilities through kiosks, uh-huh. um, which allows them to do a lot of, of their daily tasks. Um, but we wanted to build on that and not only provide them with answers to immediate questions, but support their journey through. Um, their sentence to ultimately our aim is to towards rehabilitation so um, rehabilitation is a big issue it's not something that's easily measurable but we know that the cost of reoffending is approximately 15 billion a year yeah. I think just under 50 percent of um, offenders reoffend within a year and it's a massive problem and just allowing people to ask questions about how much money they've got in their spends account or when the next visit is is kind of meeting their immediate needs but we wanted to to provide that extra layer of support and guidance and information that allows them to um, build on that and really progress through their sentence plan and um you know act if they've got challenges or support that they need with potentially substance abuse or behavior or reconnecting with friends and family and getting themselves prepared to come back into society that's a big one yeah because because disproportionately prisoners will have to engage with gov services when they when uh, when they're leaving so they have to either apply for universal credit or they need housing or something that means that they're in a position not to just go back and do exactly what they were doing the day before they got caught and got brought in um and so if we can introduce so there's so many things that this thing could be um so this is an opportunity to introduce some of the challenges are around what actually is this thing but this is an opportunity to introduce the patterns, the the gov.uk services, get familiarity with that because some people might have spent the last 15 years in prison and digital right. by default has passed them by. Yeah, yeah. So, so even just engaging with the platform is teaching them about how to use a computer and digital there services. There are so many different layers to this about familiarity yeah, yeah. with um, okay. digital services. About quick look yeah, at yeah, what it going. looks like. Yeah, this just um, is a loop yeah. of the homepage as it stands at this point. So, um, so we've used some sort of familiar design patterns. Um, there is a lot of media content on there and we wanted to reuse some of the design patterns that we're all familiar with in terms of like Netflix, iPlayer, Amazon Prime, the kind of media content platforms, um, while integrating kind of the transactional and informational content in there as well. Um, this is kind of hot off the press. We did some testing last week and the top section um, is brand new we're going to be retesting that it's an iteration of of a prototype that we tested um but it's moving towards bringing in personalized information which isn't currently available at the moment it's it's very much content that's just generalized and available to all so this is kind of like phase two now um, you can probably move on to the next yeah, slide. Yeah, I was now. just going to say, you can get a real sense of it just from looking at the browse by topics to see. Yeah, there's kind of a, a really wide so breadth of I content. One, on of, there. one of the things that's also worth highlighting is that, is that this whole structure is not, this is not us squirreled away in right. the office on Scotland Street and doing it. Yeah, yeah. We actually go and sit in cell with the prisoners and we're trying to derive what they actually need and what we can help them with and what's useful and what's the, the, the most productive use of our time on there. It's not us saying this is good for someone this is a collaborative exercise and even to the to the extent that last week we were sat with some lifers in Wayland doing some sketching yeah so this is an actual cell this is one of the tests um we don't uh, picture any of the individuals specifically but this is somebody's actual cell um, and how they have it set up. So we do a lot of contextual research. We can't get participants to come to us for obvious reasons, so we go to them. But it really adds a lot to the experience of understanding the cramped space, the length of the cable, how yeah. they can interact with the really crappy laptops that they get given. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it and really they don't actually have internet access. Either, no, so they don't have internet. It's all, offline. yeah, it's a closed network that is just yeah. within the two prisons. Um, so it's very locked down. Yeah, and it's probably also worth saying that Gemma, as a service designer, did the first bit of work that the MOJ has ever done on mapping actually what prisoners do in a day. 
it was ne it's never been understood That's before amazing, about how how do how do they actually what do they do when they get up in the morning what do they do what do they have to do then what are the things that are important to them yeah. and this was a whole mapping exercise that has been sort of enlightening for the MOJ as an organization to go actually we can start to use this as something that informs all the services that we provide in terms of rehabilitation. So what was it like for you guys I mean you know you've been a service designer for a lot longer than working at HMPPS and you're a content designer mm -hmm. presumably you've done lots of other work on more commercial things. Sure. Uh, how are you finding engaging with the prison service and with prisoners in this very kind of this is the best job I've ever had? Is it? <laughs> yeah, because you're making a, like a really because you're making a real challenge. you've got the opportunity to make a real difference to yeah. to some people who like it's you have to detach yourself from maybe what the thing that they've done. So the gates have closed on it, and justice is is being served on them. But mm. actually, who do you want coming out at the other end? Do you want somebody who's been ignored? has had no hope or opportunity. That absence of hope is massive. Mm. But actually, if you take someone and say, okay, you're going to serve a sentence, but what are we going to do with you while you're with us, while you're in our care? And it's, as a content designer, my work is often involved in like the language of how we talk about prisoners. So you could talk about prisoners as the cons that have committed this serious offence and they need to be punished. But as a thought exercise, you could also go, these are people that are in our care mm. because often they, you know, before they're ever a perpetrator, they're a victim. When you start existing in their space, I don't want to say you feel sort of empathy for them, but you have to feel no, empathy for them. It's and you, and you, it's, it's not just black and white. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that, that sense of giving people who've never had an opportunity or hope before something to cling on to that they can come out with and not just do the same thing again. Yeah. That's, you know, it matters to me. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember the next slide now. <laughs> okay, so this is um, just a screen grab of a feedback mechanism that we implemented um, earlier in the year. And this is really important because quite often it's difficult to get feedback from the users. Um, and also it really feeds into um, this concept of procedural justice and giving them a voice. Mm -hmm. And even in a small way, allowing them to... Um, respond to the content that we're putting on there. Um, so ge as just as general user feedback, it's really interesting, but it also helps us measure engagement and make sure that we're um, able to put content on there that is meeting their needs and engaging them and stimulating them. Um, and it's been really, really useful. And we've got um, some fantastic stats around that. Um, and we get a lot of comments and hardly any abuse which was quite surprising because we thought yeah, that so might be the case yeah 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 um but it was a really simple way for us to just get that immediate feedback but it is being used and it's I guess a, yeah. prisoners do want to absolutely give you their comment on it and, and, and yeah and i suppose the only the, the last point i'd like to make is that we do have content teams that are of prisoners because we're we're really one of the foundations yeah. um one of the two things that we're really keen on, we're not here to replace the essential human interactions that are needed for progression. So we're there to support it. What can we do extra that helps people, that, that supports and enhances that human interaction? And it's almost that wherever we can use authentic voice, we do so we get the prisoners to produce content for each other because it's, it's all well and good me standing there and, and or me producing some content and saying, this is good for you, but it's completely different. It lands completely yeah. differently if it's peer to peer. Yeah. I've lived this experience and it's not, you know, we're not bullshitting you on this. It's like, it's real. So, you know, unfortunately, we, we, you did send me a video that we're not really able to show because it's not... It's we not don't know who he is, but... Yeah, yeah. But it, it, was a, it was a video of a, an, an inmate um, basically to, um, reciting a poem that... It, yeah, so we, we gave them the brief of, like, if you were to produce content um, that supports progression, what would you do? And it, it's really inspiring, actually, some of the stuff that they came back with. And this was a video that was... It was a poem that was fi written, filmed, edited, all on site, uh, and then shared in the two prisons. And it's about somebody's personal experience of recovery. Um, the only reason we can't show you it is because, I mean, we had a debate over it, and it's because I genuinely, I don't know who he is, mm. and yeah. I can't... He never intended it yeah. to be published on the open internet. Yeah, and that's one, one of the things, films, but so it would be... perfectly fine. Yeah, it's, really, it's, it's great to show people. I think some people might have seen it, but... Yeah. Um, I guess the last thing for me, because I know we're a bit over, but is just the importance of that co-creation, um, not only with content, but with the actual interface and the platform itself. So the previous slide was just a, a, an image of us 
doing some wireframe and some sketching with um, some of the prisoners themselves. Yeah. So right through from creating the information architecture um, and the actual interface designs and iterating and getting usability testing and feedback directly. Um, we're not the experts. We don't use this thing. It's really important for us to understand that. So I think the, the blend of the interface being designed by them and the content being designed designed by them and for them um, just really hits home that, you so know. We're, we're sort of enablers in this process. Yeah. 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 Um, and the thing that you just showed with the Berwyn Times, yeah. that's that's almost like um, there's a prison newspaper that's produced, but there's, there's problems inherent in the production of the prison newspaper. It costs money. There's an overhead on the prison. But actually, everybody's got a laptop and we can make this digital it's like every newspaper is going in right. the world and it's dragging prisons into the 21st century when they've sort of missed out the 20th century yeah, yeah. it's just been stone age well, to, they've, they've gone back to, to, to now going probably okay. hyper local news yeah, yeah and it's yeah. uh, hyper local news so yeah. so they think well and, it, and and that again is an attempt to address that there's nothing for me here there's nothing going yeah. on so that so it's highlighting opportunity but also there's, there's just things going on because there's, there's, there's people here like, living in a space and there's community and th there's, there's all these things that you, that you might not think are happening there, but actually they are. They're just people living in a certain situation yeah. and they're going to come out again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're bringing them digital media for the first time, I guess. Yeah. So Sometimes, congratulations. Yeah. It's, a really, it's a really great set of work you're doing and it seems pioneering. So congratulations. HMPPS Digital Studio. Hey, hi. Our next guests are Ed and Richard from Impelling. Um, you guys are a uh, web development company over in Rotherham, um, but you've recently launched a new product into the education market, which is StudySafe. Yes. Uh, so um, tell us about you and the product. Okay, so not just web development. Yeah. Um, we've done a few things as Impelling. Um, IT support, that's both into businesses and schools. So important to note there's an education connection with Impelling, the parent company. Um, we've also uh, got a sister company called Blith Internet. Uh, Blith Internet provides internet to residents of the village of Treaton. Um, that came about when our managing director one day um, woke up with slow internet and decided he was going to build an ISP. Um, so he built a village ISP yes. in his village. Yes. Okay. So this new product is kind of the the culmination of all those skills in the business and um, yeah, us kind okay. of organically finding a niche that we can occupy. Um, so you so, were never a networking company until your MD until did this? We had network experience, yes, yeah, okay. but yeah, never proper big boy networking until the ISP came along. Okay, uh, so let's have a look at your first slides then. Okay, yes, yeah, so these are our users. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, this is an actual customer school um, using the product. So the product is a filtered internet connection, basically. So we provide a school with an internet connection. Yeah. Um, it's filtered, so that any inappropriate material is blocked. Um, there's also a control panel that allows school staff to log on and make changes to the filter. So if they want to unblock a resource for the duration <coughs> of a lesson or they want to block a popular game or whatever, mm -hmm. they've got this nice easy to use control panel that lets them do it. Okay. So th this, is, this is pretty much standard equipment for schools. Every school has got internet connections and filters. Yep. So what is it about StudySafe that makes it different or necessary in the market? So in a nutshell, um, all the other ones are horrible to use. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um, well, that makes a big difference. Yeah. I think we're, we're the only product as well that's specifically targeted towards primary schools. Right. So the, the way that primary schools work these days is they're getting increasingly squeezed with their budget, which means that they might not be able to afford to employ a technician full-time on site. And so we've seen this with Impelling, the sister company, and that when we have technicians going into school, there'll be a, a stack of laptops and there'll be a book full of problems that they'll have to solve and very low down the list of priorities is internet filtering requests. Right. So the idea well, behind... Because they have a service contract with a company that they are not on site, and they come in maybe once a week or once every two weeks yeah. to deal with any problems for a day. Yes. Is that Yeah, yeah. And then, setup, yeah, the tech will have a million and one things to do. Yeah. And, yeah. Like tweaking the, the web filters. Yes. Is 
pretty low so, priority. Yeah. So when that means that if, if a teacher wants a resource unblocked, yeah. they might not be able to get it unblocked until next week when the text next in. Right. So the goal behind StudySafe is to um, give teachers control again. So to negate the need for the tech, make it easy enough that they can understand what's happening when they change a rule in the filter, make it um, easy enough that they can log on and do it themselves without an instruction book or a manual. Right. Should I move on? To, I, the slides that you've given me are they're very vague. They're, yeah, yeah, they're really abstract. I really like them, but I don't know what they mean. So I'm just going to move and ask you, what's this about? <laughs> so yeah, uh, what does this represent? This is this is the photocopy anecdote. Um, so this cute, is cute photocopy anecdote. Yeah, this is about um, building the product as kind of a. Um, to, to scratch our own itch. So as a, an IT company that works in schools, that's where the product began. We, we went in there and we used these smooth wall light speed systems, which are just absolutely horrible. I can't stress that enough. Like, all the competition is really bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Presumably because they were designed by engineers for other engineers to, to set rules and yeah. configurations. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, they're designed to be operated by technicians. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, they're infinitely configurable, and so I mean, I'm surprised they're not just command line, to be honest. Well, yeah, <laughs> some of them almost could be. <laughs> so yeah, our use case is is a little bit different. It's um, geared around just making it easy for the teacher. Yeah. Um, so the photocopier anecdote is um, both Rich and I go out with teachers. Not um, the same one. Not the right. same one, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have the same name, but they are different people. <laughs> same school. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, my girlfriend told me a story about um, wanting to unblock a website in her school and the hoops that she had to jump through to get it done were so ridiculous that she ended up printing the entire website off and photocopying it 30 oh. times and giving it to the class. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's not that an uncommon happen. story. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yep. yeah, there's numerous ways it's bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, and... And so presumably, the, a lot of this is caused by false positives. False positives or false negatives? False negatives. Overblocking yeah, is so what we like to call it, yeah. Um, okay. And yeah. yeah, internet filtering is a tricky thing to get right. Yeah. You're never going to get it perfect. Um, overblocking is as much of a problem as underblocking. It's just as frustrating for a teacher trying to access a resource, whether that's for lesson planning or to use as part of a class. Yeah. Um, if they can't get on it, that can be, yeah, really, really detrimental and to what they're trying to do. Presumably, they do a lot of their research into new learning resources at home where things are perfectly available and then they come to school and they can't use it and they, yeah. they have to wait weeks to get it unblocked even if they can. Yes. So, yeah, that's the whole idea behind StudySafe is okay. that we give the power back to the teachers, right. make it easy for them to do stuff. So, so is this next slide another anecdote? Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> it's actually perfectly segues from what we were just discussing. So does anybody know what that is? Except, ah, except yeah. for the people who work for us already. It, it's a particular kind of whale, isn't it? It's a, it's a sperm whale. Okay, so <laughs> we were just talking about... You can get the rele relevance to overblocking yeah, yeah. immediately. Um, so it's a strange one. This has kind of become our unofficial mascot because it's a perfect way to explain why certain resources should be blocked and certain resources shouldn't. So if you type in sperm whale into the internet, obviously, you get, as you can imagine, you get some things that are quite educational and some things that are probably educational to some people, but not, yeah. not in a primary school setting. Um, so what we've done is, is, well, you can see on our stand over there, there's lots, all sorts of logos and things, but the, um, the basis of, of, and I'm not the techie person, you're going to see this in a second as I start explaining it, the way we block things works on some block lists. So we use the IWF, who are Internet Watch Foundation, and yep. they supply us with some lists. We use the Home Office, who supply us with some um, anti-terrorism things and stuff like that. And they're kind of baked in, and you just can't go to those URLs. They're standard blacklists. And then a lot of it's to do with content ins inspection. And that's yep. where the, the, I don't want to say fun, because it's a very serious subject, but for the technical side of it, that's where the, the kind of the challenge is, mm -hmm. is to inspect content on a page and then serve up things that are relevant. So 
things about sperm whales that should be there and the other stuff that shouldn't go through. So this is semantic analysis and um, natural language processing. I'm going to look at you because you're the technical director. Yes. Yes. Well done, Chris. <laughs> I know some buzzwords. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, I mean, what this slide's supposed to, to lead on to is the is the, the how it was built aspect of it. So um, we start off with that base of the, the list that you're not supposed to go to, and then the content inspection. But then it's it's all um, it, getting to a stage where it, it works in all the environments. Is working with the teachers in the schools themselves. Yeah. Um, and that's a really powerful thing because we've got because we've got impelling who've got text like boots on the ground type thing, and this product was built as a, a reaction to the teachers not being able to get to their resources. We built something that was like we knew that it was Ofsted compliant. We knew that it was going to work in schools, but we just did it to make lives easier, kind of for our techs as well as yeah, the teachers. They were, they were struggling with other solutions yeah they were the ones that were like solutions. we spent all our time yeah. trying to unblock something on this thing and then we brought in the web team from impelling and used that as to to develop this really nice ui and suddenly you've got something that teachers are talking to other teachers about and then we've got a product and now we're sitting in front of you talking about sperm whales so yeah <laughs> that's how it happens yeah i don't know yeah <laughs> okay what about this Oh, God. We're getting super abstract now. <laughs> um, so, there's one more to go, I think. <laughs> this represents the technical challenges involved with the products. Um, at peak, we process about 10 million log entries an hour. Um, so, yeah, forest logs. There you go. Okay. Big um, log stack. Yeah. So, yeah, the way that the product works, um, every site that's visited in school, every request that's part of that website has to be logged for auditing purposes. Um, at peak times, we've seen about 10 million in an hour. Um, so you can imagine there's quite a bit of infrastructure behind that and quite a lot of banging heads on desks to make it all work. Um, no, yeah, involved with making it happen, basically. Yeah, yeah. So how scalable is it? I mean, how many sites have you got? What's the plan for? So we're in about 80 schools at the moment. Wow. Um, when did you launch this? So it's been a, a slow launch. Um, so it started out with schools that Impelling worked with. Yeah. Um, and then recently, in the past six months or so, we've been really ramping it up and pushing out nationally. Um, but yeah. The, so 80 schools currently yes, using the platform. Yes. And so if you can imagine in a lesson when they're teaching a lesson on Google Earth, um, the volume of requests that come through is quite significant. Um, and because the product is a, a cloud product, all of the internet traffic comes out of the school, is analyzed in our data center, and then sent back to the school. There's quite a lot of um, network magic that happens, right. quite a lot of code analysis, quite a lot of queuing, um, yeah, all sorts of stuff to make it work. Okay. Well. It'd be nice to go into that, but maybe we'll talk to you about it in the networking <laughs> afterwards rather yep. than go to it in more detail. Um, but that's, this is the final slide. I can see that that's very red and it's telling us to stop. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is less abstract. So uh, as uh, Ed already pointed out, we both go out with teachers. And uh, what our, this is supposed to represent what our product allows the teachers to do. Which is go on holiday because they're making more. No, it's, it's so they can they can they can spend more time doing the things they want to do. Yeah, which is teaching the lesson. Yeah, um, which is exactly one of the government's directives for for Department of Education: reduce the amount of time that teachers spend doing non-essential tasks. Exactly. And so blocking websites is absolutely a non-essential task. Just so. imagine that I said those words because that's exactly <laughs> what I was supposed to say. All right. Well, it's a brilliant product. Um, congratulations on it. It's. Uh, I think it's really exciting, as, as like nerdy as unblocking websites <laughs> is. Um, but uh, ladies and gentlemen, study safe, Ed and Rich from much. Impelling. Uh, so um, yeah, welcome David Forrester from, uh, well, from Lightwork Design as you were, but are you now Lightworks at Siemens PLM software is that it, it, it kind of seems to change on a weekly basis um, <laughs> yeah we are we're kind of now a division inside Siemens PLM which is the software part of, of Siemens which I guess most of you will have heard of uh, yeah. so we've gone from being a very little company to being a very small part of an absolutely massive organization yeah. big challenges 
and presumably Slipstream VR, which is the product that you've got here demoing and you're talking about, is one of the main reasons that Siemens came in for you last year. It was certainly a key part of it, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I guess we'll kind of talk about that maybe as the presentation goes yeah. on. But um, okay. yeah, we've you know, Siemens have been a, a big customer of ours for a long time, so we had a, a very good relationship with them. Uh, but the fact that we were you know, involved in brand new leading edge technology for sure made a, a big difference in terms of the acquisition. Cool. Okay, well, let's, let's have a look and see what Slipstream is, if yeah. the video works. Always a little bit worried about this. Uh, let's go, it's fine. Get the volume up. All right. It looks awesome. So that's part of what we do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess the background to this is that as a business, Lightworks have actually been going for 30 years. Uh, so we've been doing this for a long, long time. Uh, our speciality is kind of um, high-end visualization of uh, computer-aided design. So we operate in the fields of things like architecture, car design, product design. We don't do kind of media and entertainment. We don't get involved in those sorts of industries. Um, so kind of traditionally, it's always been we take a, a 3D CAD model and we produce a, a photorealistic image of it. So mm -hmm. uh, using our software to produce a still, kind of the equivalent of a photograph for, yeah, uh, for, for kind of visual purposes. Right, for previews of designs and yeah. for sharing with clients. Exactly, and that kind of yeah, exactly that. Marketing purposes, yeah. sales purposes, whatever it might mm -hmm. be. Um, what we kind of found a couple of years ago uh, was that uh, games engine technology, so the likes of Unreal and Unity, uh, we're getting kind of really close uh, to the quality that we were able to produce. And lots of the companies that we were talking to were kind of saying, we want to be able to use these things because not only do we get like, really good stills, we can interact with them. Uh, and fundamentally, we can use them for virtual reality. Mm -hmm. uh, and VR was becoming you know, a kind of a big thing mm. uh, a couple of years ago, probably still a little bit unusable at that stage. Um, so rather than kind of thinking, you know what, this is just an absolute massive competitive issue for us, we decided to kind of jump on the bandwagon. Right. So, so, so you had your own graphics engine. You Correct. were developing graphics engines for photorealistic yeah, yeah. Um, visualization. And then Unreal and Unity come along and say, you know, like the poly count goes up and the, the lighting and rendering is suddenly churning out 60 frames per second. Yeah. And yeah, so exactly that, Chris. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of some of the big automotive companies we were talking to are kind of saying, you know, we go home, we play games, and they're, you know, they are so easy and the graphics are absolutely awesome. And so we're playing with them in house and we want to do design work using these sorts of tools. Um, the, the, the interesting thing is that you know, the way that games are created, obviously, there's an awful lot of artistry that goes in there and a lot mm. of, of special work. If you're trying to take a, a large CAD model of a car or a plane or whatever it might be, you take that and you import it into a games engine, it's very clunky. Uh, there's too much uh, data in there. The games engine can't cope with it. And if you don't get the 90 frames per second, right. it's a horrible experience. Okay. And yeah, people yeah. are being, you know, sick. So but, but because, that, because the CAD model is so accurate, it's yeah. too many polygons Correct. for the engines. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not designed... Yeah. for rendering it, it, in the engine. Exactly that. Today, there is just too much for yeah. either hardware or software to be able to deal with. Uh -huh. um, so the opportunity we saw and, and what Slipstream effectively does is it automates the process of simplifying that data. Um, so rather than a large car company employing a, a, a kind of a, a set of games engineers, games designers, stripping down the data and doing all this simplification, what Slipstream does is it takes your CAD model, you press a button, it goes through the Slipstream pipeline, and it outputs into an Unreal game experience. Right. Um, and what we've done with Unreal is actually to create uh, materials, textures, which are specific to the company we're working with. So if you're a car company, you have your own paint set, you have your own leather interior uh, materials, right, whatever it right. might be. So we, we create those. Yeah. Uh, so our, our office here in Sheffield, we have an artistic team as well as a development and they're team. they're creating texture packs for this client or that client. Yeah, exactly that. And then we also create the environment that they want to see their, their car in. I'll use car as the example because I think yeah. all the videos are cars. <laughs> um, so if you're a car designer, you'll have an interior design studio. You'll expect to see a car in that sort of um, uh, environment or maybe an outside scene, uh, yeah, kind of outside your offices. So again, our, our designers, uh, our artists will model that in kind of as accurate a situation as right. you can. So when you're immersed in the headset, what you're actually looking at as a, as a car designer, as an executive, really mirrors the reality that you're expecting to right. see. You see it in your context. Correct, yeah. And I guess if you're a client, you might want to see it on a runway or in front of some kind of, you know, photo, you know nice right. photographic background. Yeah, yeah. But when you're an engineer, you want to see it 
yeah. in a workshop. Yeah, and, and, and the image you've got on, on screen at the moment is kind of an interesting example of that. So Hackrod are a, a startup automotive, and you don't get to say that very often. Um, but they're trying to kind of completely change the way that automotive design and manufacturing happens. Um, so they're kind of they're playing around with this concept car, which you see on there at the moment, um, which is kind of 3D printed, uh, generatively designed. Um, the whole business model is completely different. It's, it's, they're a really interesting organization. Um, but one of the things, this is kind of where, I mean, you know, VR is really cool technology, but at the end of the day, people need to be able to see a return on investment. You know, car companies aren't investing in VR to give their designers something new and cool to play with. Um, so traditionally, when a car is designed, they create full-size clay models. Uh, so there are guys actually creating these amazing structures. Um, the challenge there is each one of those uh, carries a six-figure price tag with it. For one car model, they might produce eight, 10, 12 full-size clay models. Right. Um, so a huge, a huge cost. And, and there's also, no overhead to tweaking them. And that's right. And you know, by the time it's made, it's out of date. Um, so we had an interesting example with a customer we were working with in the UK. Um, sadly, I'm not able to say names of most of the customers that we're working with, but they're a car company and James Bond likes them. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, who could that be? Um, so they, were, they had a clay model of their, their new vehicle in the design studio. They invited the senior executives down to look at it. And as they were explaining it, they were saying, this is great, but actually we've changed the design of the lights since this was made. We've changed the design of the bumpers since we had the clay model done. Um, so what they wanted to be able to do was actually see a, a virtual reality version with a clay model shader on it. So you've kind of, you've got virtual real reality. Oh, is that what this is? Is that that's what we're a, looking at? That's a clay model ah, shader. Ah, right. So okay, that's, what, that that's what we were trying to show. And so effectively what the engineers there said was, put the headset on guys, because now you can see today's version of the design, not the one from two <laughs> weeks ago. So that's, that's kind of where virtual reality really starts to come into play. Mm -hmm. And use Vive for your... Virtual reality. We do use Vive. Um, anyone who hasn't used VR, we've got the Vive set up in the corner. My colleague Jamie will be happy to give you a demonstration. VR is great, but it's, it doesn't show very well on a screen. You've got to immerse yourself in it. But the reason I put this image up on, on screen was really, um, as a software developer, and I'm sure there's many of you in the room, one of the big challenges we have is the fact that the hardware market is changing continuously. Um, so we work with Vive, uh, but there's a new Vive model coming out all the time. This is their latest one with this precision eye tracking on it. Um, and as a customer, you expect your software to just work with the latest hardware, and it rarely does. Right. So there's a constant overhead on making sure that these things all continue to work. So I just wanted to kind of just say it's, it ain't no, easy. You're on a curve chasing. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, leading edge stuff. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Speaking of leading so edge. this is the reality of virtual, virtual immersion. So I, I, I love this photo, and uh, the, the guy who's sat in there will probably kill me for showing this publicly, but yeah, I'll, I'll deal with that. It's very British. Very British, very patriotic. <laughs> so the background to this is we were working with a, a car company who are based in Los Angeles. Um, they had invested $100,000 or so in a full-size interior buck, as they would call it. So this is actual car seats, molded plastic dashboard, um, steering wheel, doors that open. And the concept we were working with them is you, you walk up to the car on the outside, you've got your headset on, you walk up to the car, you open the door, and you get in and you sit down on the seat and, it's, and it feels like reality. Yeah. But what you're seeing is actually a, a concept design of the, of the interior. They had $100,000 to spend on this. We didn't. Um, but we had to provide the software that would work with this. So what you see there is Michael, our QA engineer, testing the, the, the hybrid. Um, so because the, the challenge here is it had to be millimeter perfect. If, if as you sat in the car, yeah. if you go to push the door open it's and you, you, you put it. your hand through it it, it, it spoils the reality. So we created this. We, we showed it to the customer. They thought it was absolutely amazing. Um, luckily, we've got a Morrison's very close to our offices, so we were able to go and <laughs> ransack them for banana boxes. Um, but you know what the amazing thing is? I went to, the, the, to, to the, the, the car company in LA. It is absolutely perfect. It works spot on, and, right. and they love it. Yeah, um, it really feels like you're there, yeah, tactile, really, haptic. really does. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Wow. So, so the other thing I just want to kind of, uh, just another point on that photo, I was talking to, uh, to Jamie earlier on about recruitment. Um, so one of the things I think both our companies have kind of really focused on is getting people with the right personalities, the right characters, the right aptitude. Skills can be, can be trained. Uh, so the guy that sat in there, Michael, he's one of our QA engineers. His job before he joined Lightworks was a landscape gardener. Um, his CV did not look as strong as it could have done. It's mm -hmm. fair to say. Very bright guy. Um, but 
uh, when we interviewed him, he had that dynamic spark. He had that thing that we thought, you know what? A, you'll make a really good QA engineer because you're a little bit, you know, attention to detail. <laughs> but also, you're a great guy. Um, so we've taken him, we've molded him. He absolutely loves his job. Um, and I think that's, that's really key. So most of the people we've taken on have been very junior and we, yeah. and we train them up. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a really nice way of running a business and yeah. the culture is so important. I think that this might feature in my slide decks of uh, examples <laughs> of problem solving. <laughs> absolutely. In Using your initiative. Yeah, because it's Banana it's so boxes clear. is the future. Yeah. Um, and I guess like, the final thing is... Uh, well, is this, is this the video or is yeah. it another video? It's uh, the video, it's isn't the it? Video. Um, is how is this is used in, in action. So it's really for design reviews that are, to, where to, people are not co-located. That? That's exactly right, yeah. So uh, we think that, I mean, VR has so many different applications. The one we're focusing on is uh, design review. Um, and in particular, it's about uh, collaboration. So the, the kind of one of the interesting things here is um, using games engine technology, we talk about collaborative design review they talk about multiplayer games. So Fortnite is the same technology as we're using for, for, our, for our design review applications. So this is you know, various different uh, executives in different parts of the world, all in the same design review at the same time. They can talk to each other, oh, they can cool. see each other, they can all kind of communicate. Uh, so the company we're dealing with in LA, their other uh, design studios are in Ohio and in Tokyo. So they can have all those people working on the same design review all at the same time. We call it something fancy. It's multiplayer game technology, actually. Yeah. Um, the other thing about this, which uh, kind of just brings us back to, to where we started, is the, the guy, the older guy there, the guy who's not a stuntman, um, is a guy called Ro uh, Roland Bush. Uh, so he's the CTO of Siemens AG. Um, so he is a main board director of one of the biggest companies in the world, and he spent two hours using our slipstream technology. Um, as you can see from kind of the branding, uh, Lightwork Designers has kind of sadly disappeared. Uh, we got acquired by Siemens towards the back end of last year. Um, and I suppose the, kind of, the point here is, if you're doing cool stuff and you've got a great team, it doesn't matter how small you are, it doesn't matter you're based in Sheffield in South Yorkshire, if the right people see you, um, there are opportunities to sell to large corporates. Um, not everyone wants to, uh, I, I completely get that we found a great home for our business. Mm. They're investing in us. They're taking this technology places we were never going to take it before. Uh, it's a really exciting time. Um, and, it's, you know, and it's great for Sheffield. Yeah, you know, Siemens yeah. have now got a, their visualization center worldwide is now Sheffield. So yeah. never thought I'd say that. No. <laughs> it's a brilliant story. Thanks so much, David. Okay. Thanks, Thanks to see you. And that's it. Well done to Chris for putting on another marvellous Sheffield Digital Showcase. Hope you enjoyed those interviews. Of course, you can subscribe to the Sheffield Digital Podcast and listen to all of the normal, regular episodes, as well as future showcase interviews, I hope, uh, by going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you particularly prefer to listen to podcasts. Whichever app you've got, it'll be in there. Just search for us. And uh, tell your friends about the show too. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, make sure that you tap your colleague on the shoulder. Make sure you don't frighten them, obviously. And uh, just let them know that uh, the podcast exists. And that's it. Until next time.